Christians, we take a closer look at Psalm 32. Again, this is a psalm of David, and it's a psalm about confession. He writes, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of our Lord. Dear Christians, if you are given a secret, if somebody confides in you and then you betray that trust, that can be particularly damaging. And not just to the good name and reputation of that person, but to the relationship that you share. Breaking a confidence like that is really a rebellion. And, and it can put space and a barrier between you and that other person. Even if the other person never, never says so, even if, even if you try and put some time in between you and what you said, there can still be this divide. It may not be something that other person really even starts. It may be in your own mind, the guilt that you feel for what you had done. And you think, you know what, I, I really don't want to face that person, at least not for some time. That person who should have been a friend, a family member, a coworker, that person you should be close to and showing the love of Christ to, instead you sin. And that sin can lead you into severing that relationship entirely. But that's not the solution for sin that God wants us to have. In fact, it's not really a solution at all. It doesn't really deal with the root of the problem. David explains the blessings of having a good relationship, not just with those around us, but also with God. He says, how blessed is the person whose rebellion is forgiven, whose, sin is co whose sins are covered. You see, rebellion does break a relationship. It, it violates the love and the trust that ought to be there. When we sin against others, the problem is that the, that the sin doesn't end there. Because a sin against that, that friend, that family member, that coworker, it's also a sin against our holy God as well. And the same sin that would separate us from that other person, it also puts a barrier between us and God. It puts a barrier between us 
and the good gifts that God wants to give us. It cuts us off from God's goodness and from his blessings. And that's certainly not where we want to be. But this is the effect of rebellion. Now, when David wrote about rebellion, he certainly wrote out of experience himself. These words we read of his confession, they are born out of a broken heart. A man who knew rebellion in his own heart and in his own life. As we look through the pages of Scripture, most of the time, David is upheld as a very ideal Christian in many ways. He's called even a man after God's own heart. Even so, he was also a man who struggled with sin in his life. And I don't know for sure which sin David had in his mind as he wrote this psalm. But there is one sin that we know about in David's life that we hear about in great detail. It all started off with something that seemed not a big deal. It seemed so innocuous, so blasé. It, it starts out with a statement that when all the other kings in the springtime went off to war, David stayed behind at the palace. And at first blush, you might think, well, no big deal, right? He's the king, he can do what he wants, and if he wants to enjoy some re relaxation and rest, he's got the right to do that. The problem was the context around this. You see, David had a job to do. It was his job in the springtime to be with the troops. He should have been there strategizing the military game plan. He should have been there even fighting alongside those troops as mighty as he was. Instead, none of that. He didn't do his duty. He stayed back at the palace. And soon his idle hands became the devil's workshop. It says one evening David found himself on the roof of the palace. And this is an important detail because it, it tells us that one sin then led into another. And the roof of the palace was normally a, a flat area. It was a sort of platform on top of the house. It wasn't pitched like we might have today. And because of that, it was, it was a very common thing to go up onto the roof and to walk around. It was even common to sleep on the roof of a house because it would get you out into the air and into the open. And it was also a lot prettier to look at the night sky than it was to look at your roof or look at your ceiling. So there he was one evening. He was walking on the roof of the palace, and because of the height, he ended up catching a glimpse of a woman bathing. And now not only did he catch a glimpse, but he lingered. He lusted. He liked what he saw, and he wanted to see even more. And even after he had looked and he had gone back into the palace, his next thought was, how can I see even more still? And so he asked his servants about her, and he, he asked who this woman was and, and to find out more details about her. And he found out that this woman was Bathsheba, the wife of a man named Uriah the Hittite. Now Uriah was a member in David's army, a soldier, and as far as we can tell from Scripture, he was a faithful soldier. So what right did David have in going any further? 
she was spoken for. She was already a married woman. He had no business going after her. Still, he pursued her. He sent some men to go fetch her and bring her over to the palace to enjoy a night with the king. It was probably an offer that she couldn't have refused, but we just don't hear about her side of things. How willing was she in all of this? What we know is that she did go along with it. What we know is that she did spend that night with the king, and so David's lust and his plotting led him and her into adultery as well. But the spiral continued. The spiral of sin gets even worse. Because when it was over, David sent her back home and thought, okay, nobody knows about this, or at least nobody who really matters knows about this. And he decided to just keep on living his life as if nothing had happened. Soon enough, though, the, the results of his sin came back to haunt him. He got message from this woman Bathsheba, and she said, I'm pregnant. And this was a real problem because the whole time her husband was off at war, and if he would come back and see that she was pregnant, obviously he would know the child wasn't his. People would start asking questions and perhaps discover David's sin. So rather than owning up to it, rather than confessing that sin, what does David do? He begins to plot some more. He invites Uriah back from the battlefront. He talks to Uriah and he, he gets him drunk. He tells Uriah, why don't you go home and, and be with your wife and enjoy the comforts of home? Take things easy for a while. But Uriah wouldn't do it. He, he thought, it just didn't seem right to be enjoying my wife's arms and the comforts of home, knowing that my brothers in arms are still out there at the battlefront. It doesn't seem right that I should enjoy this pleasure when they can't. And so he wouldn't go home. David's plan to cover his sin had failed. But did he stop there? No. He continued to plot, and this time he didn't plot to just cover up his sin. He even plotted murder. This time he, he wrote out a death warrant for Uriah the Hittite. He gave specific instructions to the commanding officer as to how Uriah might be put to death. He sealed those instructions and he handed them to Uriah. And little did Uriah know that he was carrying his own death warrant. Uriah handed the notice to his commanding officer and soon enough the orders were carried out. Uriah was put into the front lines into the fiercest part of the battle, and the advance was made. As they were there in that heat of the battle, attacking a city that was defending itself, then the troops pulled back. They cut off those advancing troops to make sure that they wouldn't make it out. And so, your, so David's sin made him not just a murderer, but a murderer who killed several people, all to cover up his sin. Now, when Bathsheba heard about what had happened to her husband, how he fell in battle, she grieved, she mourned. And then David received her into his palace as his wife. What I wonder and what we're not told exactly is, did David ever own up to his sin with her? 
did he tell Bathsheba what really happened to her husband? Or was she led to believe that these things happen in war? Sorry. It all started off with something that seemed so innocent, so not a big deal. Laziness. And I know we'd like to think that we would never do such a thing, that, that our hearts would never lead us down that path. But honestly, ask yourself, have you been lazy? Are there times that you don't pour your heart and your soul and your energy into what you're doing at that time? Are there days when you don't really want to get out of bed? You'd rather just sit there and lay there? Are there times when work is set in front of you, whether at school or, or at the office, and you really don't dig into it as quickly and efficiently as you could? That's laziness. And it's the same sin that David was struggling with. That sin in itself is enough to condemn us, but it's also a sin that can lead us to other sins as well. Think about where laziness can lead. It can lead you to, to do all kinds of things. Somebody who's lazy, they may well be led into adultery, as David was. They may well be led into thievery, armed robbery, all because they're trying not to have to put their effort and energy into their daily work. As we evaluate our hearts, we need to be honest and say that, that too often the only thing that separates us from King David's sin is a lack of opportunity. Yes, even the sexual sins there too as a society, we are guilty, and it's all too evident. You look around at society, and you hear that half the marriages now end in divorce. And nowadays, there are many who never get married in the first place. They simply move in together, outside of God's plan for their lives. They sin. And so I think that statistic is probably quite a bit worse than even 50-50. You've also got no shortage of gentlemen's clubs in the local area. You've got no shortage of internet pornography these days and, and all the, the, the dollars that go around for that. This is a prevalent sin in our society. Again, too often, we need to admit that the only thing that separates us from David and his sin oftentimes is simply a lack of opportunity. Oftentimes, I'm, I'm thankful for the times when, when I'm not confronted with any kind of sin, when, when sin is just kept at length so that I don't need to try and stand up against it. God, knowing my sinful heart and my weakness. I wonder how David would react if he were put into your shoes today with all the opportunities at your fingertips. How might he react what sins might he be led into doing? But you know what? David also confessed something else. He confessed his guilt. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You see, each of us has a moral compass. Even before we turn to the pages of Scripture, even before we hear our first Bible story, 
God plants into each of us some idea of right and wrong. He plants into each of us this, this sense of morality, this sense of here's what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Now again, that moral compass doesn't always point us in the right direction. But the fact that it exists at all tells us that there is a God and that we are going to be held accountable to him someday. The fact that we have this idea of right and wrong, of good and evil, it tells us that there is a judge who decides the difference between the two. It tells us that there is a God who cares about what we do and think and say or what we don't do or think or say. And when we take that moral compass and go to God's word, that moral compass finds its true north in God's truth. We see just how holy and perfect and amazing our God really is. And all the more clearly we see our sin. We no longer compare ourselves to the people around us thinking, oh, I'm not so bad off. All of us confronted with God's holiness have to admit, I am terrible. I am a terrible sinner. And we also see clearly what that sin deserves. Death. In all these things, we might say, David, how could you do such a thing? How, how could you be led into this kind of sin? We might say the same thing about ourselves. How could I be led into sin like that? Along with that sin, again, the devil heaps on the guilt. He makes us feel the weight of it as David did when he says even his bones were wasting away. His very strength was sapped. God didn't give him rest. And this was actually a piece of God's mercy. You see, if God would have led David to, to sin peacefully and be at peace with what he had done, then he might end up in the end face to face with his holy God having sin to bear. But God didn't give up on David, and he doesn't give up on you. No, with David, he, God even gave him extra grace. He sent Nathan the prophet to David to confront him with his sin. Nathan had a little chat with David where he got David to admit that what he had done deserved death. And then Nathan said, you're the man who's done this. You're the one who deserves to die. Ouch. David was convicted down to his heart, down to his very soul. And he was just waiting for that axe to swing, for the, for the next shoe to drop. What was God going then to do to him after he had done such a thing and been led into all of this sin? Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Really? Really? And again, I know that we might ask the question, how could David do such a thing? How could he sin like that? I know that at times we might ask the same question of ourselves and say, how could I be led into that kind of sin, to say that kind of thing about my friend around their back? How could I do such a thing? But neither of those questions are the real one we want to grapple with this morning. The real question to grapple with 
isn't how could David or even how could I, but rather how could God? How could God simply forgive a sinner? How could the holy and righteous judge, the one who is the fairest of all, how could he say that the guilty end up going free, that the sinners are declared innocent? And the answer is found only in our Savior, only in Christ. It is found there at the cross as our Savior bled and died for us. As Jesus took on the thorns and the nails, as he was totally cut off from all of God's blessings there at that cross. It tells us that that God the Father turned his back on his one and only Son, And what's hard to comprehend about that is that we're talking about a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet somehow God was able to turn away from the Son. It's a kind of turning away that we never have to understand fully, a a turning away that we never have to experience. What makes it even more amazing is that Jesus was totally innocent in all this. He was totally innocent all on his own, having no sin of his own to bear. He had no reason on his own to have to suffer, and yet he did. He took the sins of the world on himself. He took your sin and mine. He took David's sin and everyone's. And he made himself the worst sinner of all time. And he was condemned for it accordingly. Again, he was cut off from God's blessings. He was cut off from the one who is life, and he died. Jesus was buried in that tomb, but the story didn't end there. He rose again to prove to us that he really did defeat our greatest enemies, that he really did defeat the devil at his own game. Jesus paid our punishment, and he lets us go free. He died our death, and he lets us live. David confesses that as well. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, David knew something about God, long before Christ had come, which is that God removes sin. He forgives it. He takes it away. And he's done that for you. The same amazing grace and love that, that David appreciated about God, that's the same amazing grace and love that you get to appreciate about your God. So no matter what sins you have to bear, no matter what guilt you may feel this morning, I want you to willingly and honestly lay it down at the foot of the cross I want you to know there's no reason to hide that sin in the first place because God already knows. Why would you try and hide it from him? God already knows and he's already paid for that sin. He's already chosen to call you his child. He's already chosen to give you his great blessings, including life eternal and a place in heaven. And then even now, we have many other blessings that follow. We have the blessings of our daily, daily lives and our daily breath. We have food on the table. We have homes to go home to. 
We have our energy, our strength, our intelligence. God gives us all that we need to keep our bodies and our lives according to his great love. Every good thing that you have in your life, every blessing that you can count, and I encourage you to count them, every one of them is a piece of God's love for you. It's another piece of evidence that tells you you're special to God. He cares about you. Yes, he cares about you enough to lay down everything, even his life, to save you. So grab on to the, the life ring instead of drowning in that ocean of sin. Have God pull you out by his love and his grace in Christ. Let him put you firmly on the rock again. Let him call you his own. Enjoy all the great blessings that he has to offer, and you will understand even more fully what David was confessing when he says, how blessed is the person whose rebellion is forgiven whose sins are covered. Your rebellion has been forgiven. Your sin has been covered in Christ. It's taken away. Trust in that truth as God promises us over and over again in his word. Trust in the God who is willing and able to do far more than we even can ask or imagine. And he has made it very clear in his word time and time again that he is a God who forgives. He is a God who makes us holy even as he wants us to be holy. He's a God who makes it clear that our forgiveness is not a process that we have to go through, but rather a declaration that God has made. He's a God who tells us that, that our holiness and perfection is not something that we need to strive for every day, but rather a verdict that he has already proclaimed over you. Certainly, th there are continued struggles in our lives. Certainly, we continue to battle with sin, but even now, as you battle, as you fight off temptation in your life, as God sees you, he sees only his holy and perfect child. He sees only Jesus and the righteousness that he has won for you. What a blessing. Amen.